0: It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit vaxtalk.org.
1: Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are ready to take on the triple threat of respiratory viruses this fall.
0: And a podcast for those of you who celebrate the 21st night of September on which this is being recorded. So, body ah to all who celebrate.
1: That's right. My name is Karen (laughs) Ernst. I'm the uh, Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines.
0: And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstrom, a pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa.
1: And we've got a great show for you. We're going to talk later to Glenn Nowak, who is a professor of mass communication at Grady University. And he is also a former CDC communications guru. So he has a lot of information, a lot of background, starting with HIV, which is when he started at CDC and going all through some thoughts on the COVID outbreak and the state of play as far as communications and vaccines today.
0: And once again, I was not able to make it to the party, so I'm sure that you had a fantastic interview and I'm excited to listen to it.
1: We did have a fantastic interview, and it just this is just my way of tricking you into actually listening to the podcast, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Well, do you have an around the web for us today?
0: Yeah, well, my around the web is actually also just wanting to talk about myself. So, I did get my COVID updated booster uh, day before yesterday and managed to find it. So it's a little tricky and kind of what I wanted to talk about are some articles talking about how kind of rocky this rollout has been, both in terms of supply and distribution and also because now that we don't have the emergency status and funding, we don't necessarily have guaranteed funding and equity for people who need their vaccinations. And so I was able to find it just by checking on the Walgreens website and looking at all the different websites and finding one that said that they had it and getting this the, it scheduled. And it wasn't actually too hard once, you know, I actually found that, but I expect it's going to be difficult for some to uh, both locate and also to have it paid for when they, when they need the vaccination.
1: Absolutely. I miss being able to just go to the mall and get my COVID shot. Yeah. That's, a, that's a bummer. I will say everyone should be able to get the vaccine paid for because there is a bridge program. Yeah, and yeah. I realize that there is some difficulty in accessing that. So I'm going to put some mm-hmm. links in the show notes so that people can look at that. But that is something that you shouldn't have to pay $120 for a COVID vaccine.
0: And, you know, I we don't have it. At my clinic as of this recording, we're waiting on that. But you know, if people are wondering, yes, I recommend it, I'm going to recommend it to my patients. I think it's a good idea. People who are asking about the myocarditis concern, you know, we saw that with the original vaccine. We really did not see that concern with the the bivalent booster and you know we don't know exactly why that small but real risk of myocarditis existed might have to do with the spacing of the two doses just the generation of that level of immunity made that risk in the young adult and older teen or teenage males but we we didn't see it with the bivalent booster i don't feel like that's a significant risk here and anyway look at it our kids you know are they lower risk than the elderly than people with a lot of medical problems if they're a healthy kid sure uh, is it no risk? Of course not. It's it's There's still a risk of COVID for everybody. And it's abundantly clear that you're you know, getting whatever variant of COVID is safer if you get it when you already have the vaccine on board. So I think it's a good idea, just like I think the flu shot is a good idea. And we're clearly moving into the phase of like, we're having this regular kind of probably annualized, updated COVID vaccine against the most recent circulating variants that we can get, just like we do with the flu vaccine. So I think it's a good idea to get both every year.
1: And you can get both at the same time.
0: You can. I did. So I got my flu and updated COVID vaccine at the same time in the same arm because I I didn't want to have to make another trip somewhere or even get another shot at work here when they bring it around in a week or so.
1: And did you feel, like, how was your reaction to it? Did you... Did you Nothing, feel terrible? No
0: problem. And I didn't really have any trouble with the other ones either. I recognize that it definitely hits some people harder than others. I never felt like any of my COVID vaccines that I had even an achier arm than a flu shot. Uh, you know, did I feel it for, do I still, if I push on the spot, I can feel it that's it i didn't have any fevers i haven't had any significant fatigue or anything like that
1: that's good to know because i know some of us try to time it so that we don't lose work days
0: and that's legit you know if you if your body makes you if you have a stronger reaction you have more fever you have more fatigue that's legit and you know plan for that accordingly it's still you know going to be better than the risks that COVID brings you
1: oh for sure one statistic I heard that was surprising to me about COVID itself is that the highest risk for hospitalization is 75 and older. The Mm -hmm. second highest risk is four years old and younger.
0: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me too much. I mean, we see that a lot, that kind of dichotomy with a lot of diseases. Obviously, when we're, as pediatricians, we worry about a lot of things and diseases in younger kids that we don't Mm -hmm. worry about as much when they're older kids.
1: And can I push you a little bit to talk about, so you talked about flu and COVID. Can we talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about RSV as long as we've got a triple threat we can take? I I keep saying triple threat. You know, I'm leading to something (laughs) that we're taking on this fall.
0: Yeah. So RSV, and I haven't seen numbers and I don't feel like I've seen it a ton in clinic right now, but RSV, which is short for respiratory syncytial virus, it's a, it causes a form of bronchiolitis. Now, bronchiolitis, different than bronchitis that we tend to talk about in adults, bronchiolitis is a viral illness. It can be caused by different viruses, but RSV is usually your, your main one that we talk about. And the main thing with bronchiolitis is that it doesn't get better with Uh, antibiotics, it's not bacterial and it is mostly supportive care, but it can be very severe. It makes you make lots of mucus. That's its big issue. And that mucus blocks your airways, especially when you're little. And as much as it just sounds like, oh, that's just mucus. If you can't keep up with the mucus, you can't get oxygen. And then those kids have to go in the hospital and get get help. So it can be dangerous, though, you know, it's also very common. Now we, you know, can see like these respiratory illnesses, they like to circulate and they all like to circulate in the winter usually. So we're gonna see kind of all three of these kind of hitting at the same time there is a new you know technically do we i don't think we technically call it a vaccine because it's an antibody that you give now we've always had for a long time we've had an antibody that we can give to high-risk people it's basically instead of a vaccine which you know stimulates your body to make antibodies this is an antibody that we just give as a shot and in the past, it's been something you'd have to give every month and it's very expensive and you can only give it to the very high risk kids, little kids, babies. And now there's a new product, the name of it, because I didn't do prep for this question, the but- Nurse for
1: nurse Mab.
0: Yeah, pretty much that's it. It always ends in an A B because it means, an M A B because it means monoclonal antibody, but right. that product is, is approved. And recommended for everybody if i remember the guidelines not every baby if i remember correctly the guidelines it's eight months up to eight months of age uh, during an rsv season every baby without a contraindication should get it and then up to i want to say around 18 months Mm -hmm. if you have certain high-risk conditions Now that's another issue of availability because I don't know, we don't have this available to us right now, and I don't know how soon it's going to be available and where, and what's the distribution. So I don't have much more information on that yet, but as RSV increases this winter, that's going to be something that a lot of people are going to be asking questions about and wanting to have available.
1: Exactly. There are uh, two other vaccines too. One is for people 60 years and older,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially people with certain medical conditions. So just because you're 61, your doctor might not recommend it. You might not be at high risk for RSV. RSV might be a cold to you, sure. but there are certainly people with you know, COPD, asthma, heart conditions, diabetes, those sorts of things that would probably really benefit from this vaccine. And then, as Nathan revealed, he took some of the magic and sparkle away. It is the 21st (laughs) of September. Tomorrow is the 22nd of September. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we're anticipating good likelihood that ACIP will end up recommending the Pfizer version of a maternal RSV vaccine that, from what I understand, would be given between 32 and 36 weeks gestation That would Mm -hmm. protect both a a pregnant person and the baby would be born with some antibodies then and so that vaccine had some questions about safety but it looks like a lot of those questions are answered it looks like a, a safe vaccine for mothers to take and so that's good news
0: yeah I haven't looked into those as much. Of course, you only have so much information about the one that's actually supposed to be available right now too. Mm -hmm. So I'll be interested to see how the meeting goes and and what decisions are made there.
1: That's right. As you're listening to this, you probably already, you know more than we do. Don't you feel smart? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) The interesting thing about the monoclonal antibody is that it's a new class of drug and there are actually a lot of them out there. If you pay attention to those drug commercials, the ones where there's a, a drug that ends in MAB, particularly for you know some autoimmune conditions like psoriasis and Crohn's disease, you'll see those MAB drugs. Those are monoclonal antibodies and those have all been approved and through regular FDA means this drug, is being is being called a vaccine like drug. And so even though it's nurserivumab, it was recommended through ACIP. And so I anticipate that the next five to 10 years are going to be really interesting when it comes to yep. vaccines and vaccine like mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals that we're going to see a lot of innovation, especially, you know, with MRNA, the monoclonal antibodies, everything um, that there's going to be a lot of innovation. It's an interesting time to pay attention if you like science and technology.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to me just because you know as much as the anti-vaccine movement loves to go on about like oh my gosh the rapidly expanding vaccine schedule blah 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 like we haven't seen new vaccines in a long time like really new vaccines especially against new diseases in ages like in, since the mid 2000s. And so and and you know I've been <laughs> pediatrician for longer than I wanna think about now at this point. And I remember starting thinking we would be seeing more vaccines and we just haven't. And now I'm hopeful that we're kind of on the cusp of like, yes, some more immunizations against things that can really do people some more benefit.
1: Right, and just like one word for all the parents of school age kids out there to dream about. This Mm -hmm. isn't on the pipeline, but let's dream about a norovirus vaccine. Yeah,
0: (gasps) yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> rsv is a big one though too so yes. this monoclonal antibody is exciting but i do think that there's a, quote unquote traditional style vaccines coming mm-hmm. down for kids as well for rsv which would be very exciting
1: yes absolutely it is it is excellent so those three viruses flu i mean we've got our our standard now flu like panoply of flu vaccines Our mm-hmm. you know egg-based vaccine our cell-based vaccines our You know adjuvanted vaccines for seniors and high dose for seniors what a what an exciting time to be alive and then we've got our covid vaccines the novavax which is a protein-based vaccine and then also our mrna vaccines obviously and then our our new panel of rsv vaccines so with all this excitement my around the web is something that we put on the web. So the cool thing about this is I'm going to show it to Nathan because it's a video.
0: Okay. But all
1: of you get to hear it. So sometimes my team and I like to come up with analogies. And, of course, my favorite kind of analogy, Nathan, is the the sports ball analogy.
0: Oh, yeah, good, because we're both so good at those.
1: Yes, we are. I am a a known sports ball expert, I believe, is... uh, what people often refer to me as. So here we go, you ready?
2: I'm so ready. This fall, defending yourself against respiratory illness is like playing football. You've got three (laughs) opponents on the field, the flu, COVID-19, and RSV, all (laughs) (laughs) aiming for a touchdown against your health. Let's break down the plays and the players. Influenza is a running back charging at you. The vaccine is your defense. Everyone over six months old should line up for the flu shot but for the younger ones under eight, consider it a halftime pep talk. They might need a second shot for full protection. The best time to get in the game is before the season starts, but it's never too late to get a flu shot. Pregnant folks can join in the game without any penalties. Getting the flu and COVID shots is safe for them and their babies. However, if you have allergies, it's like calling an audible. Huddle with your doctor to pick the best vaccine for you. Here's where it gets exciting. You can execute a double defense play by getting both a COVID-19 booster and a flu vaccine at the same time. This is a smart move, recommended for most players 6 months and up. But if you're in the veteran league, those over 65, you might need an extra play, a second COVID-19 booster or a stronger flu vaccine. Imagine RSV as the rookie player on the field, but it's contagious. Now we have new plays for it too. There's one shot for our seasoned players, the ones over 60, and another for the little rookies, infants and young kids. The cool part is these vaccines can line up beside the flu and COVID-19 shots, creating a triple threat on the field. In the end, it's all about defense. To keep your health from taking a loss against these opponents, it's crucial to get vaccinated. And here's the winning play. You can score big by getting these vaccines in a single visit to your provider. So. Gear up and make sure your team stays in the game. So, first of all, cute. <laughs>
0: Second of all, I have no idea if those analogies are valid, but I'll, I'm will i going to trust you and your expertise on that.
1: You should not trust me. <laughs> I have no idea. But they seem footballish enough. I mean, sounds good. I will say there is a, a little uh, Easter egg for people who may or may not be Minnesota Vikings fans mm. in there.
0: Okay. All right. Tiny I one. also don't know what that is. Microscopic. Okay. (laughs) Well done.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Well, I guess it's time to turn to our interview, isn't it? I guess so. All right. On the other side, we will be talking or I will be talking to Glenn Nowak. Nathan will be listening.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Glenn Nowak, um, who is a longtime vaccine communicator. He worked for, I think, about 10 years at the CDC on- 14. 14, even better, at the CDC in communications, and he is now working at the academic level and in mass communications and journalism. So welcome, Glenn. Well, thank you. So great to have you because of all of your experience. Now, what year did you start at the CDC again?
3: I started working with folks at the CDC in 1990, and I was at the University of Georgia as an assistant professor of advertising. And my dissertation research happened to do with public service announcements and I got asked to get involved in a project with the Division of HIV-AIDS at CDC looking at how could they make their public service announcements for the HIV AIDS hotline more effective that was the first of about 7 or 8 projects i did over the span of 9 years as a visiting communication scientist with cdc all of them with the division of hiv aids
1: that is amazing that's good work a number of people who listen to our podcast may not remember 1990 i do <laughs> I remember 1990 clearly, and and the AIDS epidemic and the starts of the AIDS epidemic at that time. What were some of the biggest challenges you had working with HIV and AIDS at that time?
3: So in, in 1998, I actually you know joined CDC as the director of communications for the immunization program, and, and I quickly realized that that the the, the projects I worked on in HIV/AIDS were really helpful. We did a lot of projects where we were out in the field. I was talking to people in the community and those those conversations brought together people with diverse perspectives sometimes those meetings got quite contentious because there was debates over how best to spend the limited hiv money that was coming to communities and some people wanted it spent primarily on prevention some people wanted to spend primarily on treatment and then there were probably two or three other good ideas at those meetings <laughs> and it was a great training ground because you had to to learn quickly how to manage that kind of contention in a public venue. You had to learn that it was really important to listen and listen first. It was important to try to develop understanding, genuine understanding and empathy for the people that you were working with. Conversely, when I joined the immunization program in 1998, it was a much different culture. It was a culture that believed that vaccines spoke for themselves and that every penny that was taken away from buying vaccines, to spend on something else whether it was communications or distribution, was a penny that could have been better spent on buying vaccines because vaccines spoke for themselves. And of course, as we've all seen, vaccines don't really speak for themselves.
1: No, their language is limited. It's interesting too, 1998, because that was, of course, the year that Dr. Andrew Wakefield published his famous now retracted Lancet study. So coming into a CDC that had that sort of old fashioned, you know, we're we're just to let the science go first and then having someone promoting bad science at the same time really must have been at at minimum interesting. (laughs) Can you kind of let us in on what sort of discussions people had when that Lancet study came out, and as it grew in prominence in and grew the anti-vaccine mov- movement,
3: yeah, that article was 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 fascinating in a number of, of levels. I mean, one, I think we all, when we first saw it, were, we're quite surprised that it had actually been published in a venue like Lancet. And that was even before a lot of the issues with the research were, were unsurfaced. Just looking at it on the face, it involved, I think, 11 children. The children were not randomly selected. None of the authors were autism experts. Dr. Wakefield himself at that time was a pediatric gastroenterologist. There were bold in claims being made for a, a study that involved 11 children. And I think. Lancet was looking for attention. and I think one of the issues with like, people sometimes forget that sometimes journals are in competition to get visibility. and back then, Lancet was trying to get as much attention for its publications as JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine. and I think they let that get a you know be one of the factors that was part of their decision making when they published that article. It also showed that you could you could you could try to do a press conference with with an expert and and, and so, um, the hospital that employed Dr. Wakefield did a press conference involving him, and I think they thought that he would stay on their key messages and their talking points, and he didn't. He he made a bunch of really strong claims. I think the other thing it quickly illustrated, and we had we had some experience with some other vaccine safety claims a few months earlier, is that people who make vaccine safety claims initially can have the upper hand because nobody is holding them to a standard, the same standard that, that, that the federal government is held to or that mainstream healthcare providers are held to in terms of the science. And so they, they, they make a big, bold claim and they don't often have much data. They may have a compelling story or anecdote or two, and they've got a great deal of latitude in what they say. And federal government and the healthcare industry have to quickly scramble and you and, and you and if it's a novel it's a, if it's a first time hyth- hypothesis or a theory you probably don't have the data sets set up to look to see whether that claim could be true and if you do have the data sets it's going to take you probably months at best to be able to look at those data sets to see is there anything possibly going on with respect to that claim and in the meantime people like Dr. Wakefield can go forward and make all sorts of claims and all sorts of pronouncements. And unfortunately, the media, what what people forget about the news media is that they're often focused on covering controversy. They're not focused on solving the controversy. And so the more argumentation, the bolder the claims, the more outlandish the claims, the more likely that media will, will cover it. And then these days, um, unlike back then, you have social media that will pick it up and, and and amplify it and send it in all different directions. So it's really hard to quickly tamp down and respond effectively to bold claims about vaccines and their safety.
1: Yeah, when that was coming out, um, I'm glad you brought up the press conference because the real problem wasn't necessarily... The study itself, I mean, the study was problematic. The real problem was the press conference and the media's desire to really gobble that up and you know, make it into a controversy and, you know, led to people like Jenny McCarthy being invited on talk shows and, you know, really made it into the mainstream consciousness. And I get this sense, correct me if I'm wrong, that people at the CDC weren't quite prepared at that time for people like Oprah to be covering vaccines, you know, as opposed to The Lancet. Yeah, well,
3: and one of the major difficulties if if you're the Centers for Disease Control Prevention or if you're um, an academic medical institution, is that doctors and experts stay in their in their lane and they're very cognizant of of their area of expertise. And so one of the challenges we had with, with, with those claims and with other claims is that they cut across medical disciplines and science disciplines. And the people who make the claims often have complete willingness to cut across all those domains and present, pretend that they're an expert in all those different areas. Conversely, people who work at CDC and, and at academic research institutes stay in their lanes. And so, if you the claims that were being made involved gastroenterology, they involved autism, they involved blood, they involved exposure to to different things, and there wasn't anybody early on that was willing and felt confident to be able to speak about things that involved different areas of science and medicine. In the meantime, journalists are assuming that just because you work at a place like CDC, you are all knowing that that you can converse about any scientific and medical topic because of the initials of the organization that you work for. And so that was a, a major challenge. And I think it still remains a major challenge when somebody makes a claim that the people making the claim, particularly if it's if, if it's a new claim, have a, a great deal of more latitude. And journalists grant them more latitude. They're they're if they held the same standard to the people making the claim as they hold the people trying to investigate the claim, I think it would be a much different world.
1: Yeah, that is a really good point. Now, as someone with an expertise in journalism and mass communication, what sense do we have as far as maybe helping (laughs) journalism become a little more science literate and saying, hey, just because a study came out doesn't mean you need to put like a wacky headline up and cover it, you know, or is that are we just lost because everyone's looking for something new and wants to scoop each other?
3: Yeah, it's really difficult. And I think we've been we've been searching for decades trying to figure out how to solve that. Because at the end of the day, what media, including news media, are about is they need audiences, they need viewers. And, you know, social media has taken that and made it even Um, more challenging because now they can count things like clicks and they can look at, you know, numbers about how many people actually clicked on that headline and, and, and pulled up the story. And so a lot of it is driven by what can I do to draw people to my website? What can I do to draw them into my content? And they know from... Decades of experience that that outlandish claims, things that are novel or new, things that cause controversy, things that involve conflict, are all things that work a lot better than a one sided article that says that here's why you shouldn't believe that claim.
1: That's very true. Besides Andrew Wakefield, what other challenges were presented to you when you were in the immunization division at CDC?
3: Well, I think the challenges fell fell probably into you know two major buckets. One was that you never knew what was gonna happen in terms of uh, either claims related to vaccines or, or things popping up from people who are monitoring the safety of vaccines. And one of the challenges is that that if you monitor the safety of vaccines and you find something that needs to be looked at, it's easy to lose, it's easy to lose perspective. And so I was often struck by people would rightly focus on you know an adverse event report or a potential link between a vaccine and some very rare outcome, but their willingness to then forget about the benefit side of vaccines, which was pretty amazing. And I think when people see experts being willing to say, well, we'll stop that vaccine, we'll pause, <laughs> even though that particular adverse event, even if there was a relationship, it's gonna take a while to figure it out. And it's likely to be very, very rare. Vaccines in the meantime are... are Doing really beneficial things. They're they're preventing, in most cases, children um, from getting illnesses and diseases that can be quite severe. And so that was one of the challenges. And then the other challenge is, is, is getting people who aren't currently getting themselves or their children vaccinated to care enough about vaccines that they will get vaccinated. And that that that's that's an ongoing difficult challenge. We're fortunate that when it comes to infant and childhood vaccines, the vast majority of parents follow the schedule. They'd hear they comply with the schedule and they turn to their child's healthcare provider for guidance and recommendations and they follow that advice. And so the percentage of parents who are, you know, deeply reluctant or trying to manage the schedule or foregoing vaccines is, is relatively small. But in the adult vaccination world, it's, it, it you have to really try to persuade people that, you know, the benefits of these vaccines outweigh whatever risks you think you'll face, either short term or long term.
1: Or even the benefits outweigh your desire to not go and actually do the work to get the vaccine and just stay where you're seated and enjoy yourself.
3: Right. I mean, the good news is that that, that that most of the survey research that's been done, including I've been involved in surveys of adults, is that they generally perceive that if they wanted to, they could easily get the recommended vaccine. So 90% will tell you that it's not a big deal to get a flu shot. It's not a big deal to get a COVID vaccine. So they are available, and I think that's a testament to how much public health and 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 um, the healthcare system have worked to make vaccines readily available and accessible.
1: Absolutely, the accessibility has just been fantastic, and you know I'm I'm glad you brought up that you know convincing people to get vaccinated because one of the things that was done early on, of course, is to check on a child's vaccine status as they were entering school. To you know, at that at that sort of um, convenient checkpoint when we're looking at their eyesight and checking them for I don't know scoliosis and hearing or whatnot, that we can also gather their immunization records and make sure they're not missing anything. And you know, it was just a few years ago, about eight. A high 80% of parents were like, yes, vaccine requirements for school are important. We are now down to 70% of parents who think, according to Pew, who think that vaccine requirements are important. And I know you've probably been sitting watching the pandemic happen and all the communication work that's been done out of of cdc and all the other partners now too who are involved in communication work and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we got to the place where people don't even think that it's important to require kids to get vaccinated for school
3: i think it still goes back to the you know the long tradition in public health particularly with respect to vaccines of one not having the resources to do, communications and education, and then, two, that belief that things that are, you know, like vaccines are so obviously beneficial that anybody can see that. And when people said, you know, vaccines, you know, speak for themselves, I think what they're forgetting is that vaccines never really spoke for themselves. When there was rampant disease, it was the disease speaking for vaccines, and so when vaccines worked, and they worked wonderfully well, and and eliminated, you know, a lot of the visibility and transmission and, and, um, and disease that were being caused. Now you had nothing really speaking for vaccines. And, and that void has never really been filled by um, a concerted effort to well educate people about vaccines. And I think there's often a sense that, that that kind of an effort should be um, billboards and and, and public service announcements. And I think it's probably more effective um, in the healthcare system that we deal with so that doctors and nurses and people who are working and interacting with patients and parents um, have the resources and ability and um, are incentivized to have conversations about why we recommend vaccines. And there's a lot going on there. It's why do we recommend the vaccines? Why do we recommend them when we at the ages at which we do? Why do we have, you know, more than one dose? Why do, Why is there these schedules? None of those things I don't think we, we really educate people about. And, and I think that one of the things that struck me when I started the immunization program, and I was a novice when I started with vaccines and working with CDC, which was actually probably a good thing. It was a blank slate. I didn't realize that you know the reason behind vaccines in most cases is we don't have effective treatments for the diseases particularly if they turn into very severe disease you can you know treat the symptoms but you you can't if a, if if measles gets hold in your body there's no treatment for measles per se and we've not really done a, a really good job of, of, of letting people know the reasons vaccines exist is to prevent you from ending up hospitalized and from ending up having to undergo you know weeks of treatment. And the treatments, I don't think people realize, also have side effects or adverse reactions. And so they're not risk-free. Um, and I think as a result, people somehow think that vaccines are unique in the sense that they, they have side effects and, and potential for serious adverse reactions, well, guess what? The treatments have the same possibilities, but but for some reason, that's just not really doesn't enter into the decision making.
1: And in some cases, the treatments, the complications from the treatments are orders of magnitude right. <laughs> worse than anything you could get from a vaccine. Right. Or, or even, you know, treatments that we think of as, you know, run of the mill, like antibiotics. Um, aren't great, you know. The pneumococcal vaccine in children can prevent middle ear infections, and uh, a course of antibiotics is, you know, it might seem like nothing, but you're kind of wreaking havoc on your kid's belly and whatnot.
3: And I think it's assumption, you know, that 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 over the counter medicines work. And, and just last week, FDA said that over the counter cough medicines don't work. Uh, <laughs> because they don't have an active ingredient that would work. I, I think the other thing is we don't regulate vitamins and supplements. And so people see vitamin and supplement ads that look like they're making a pretty bold assertion, like take this and improve your memory, take this for your brain health. And then in really small print in that ad or somewhere on the package is a statement that says that none of this has been evaluated by the FDA and we're not actually making a claim when it looks like they, they certainly are making a claim. And you can walk into, you know, supermarkets and, and places like Costco and you can buy jars of cinnamon supplements or all sorts of supplements. And I think it gives people a sense that that wouldn't be there if it didn't have value. <laughs> But the reality is none of those have demonstrated value in any kind of a scientifically um, rigorous uh, form.
1: It's true. People are always surprised by that. I want to get back to that um, 30% of people who think that, you know, we don't need to require vaccines for schools. I think that we all sort of watched and we all – I mean, I I don't think there's any mystery to it. We all watched vaccines become politicized. We all watched the idea of, or even the word mandate become toxic so that the moment you say you must do this thing, the reaction from a full 50% of the country was, I don't want to, so I won't, or you can't make me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, and which is true. Yes, we, we can't make you get any vaccine. I I would concede that for certain. But uh, I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, do you, I don't think it started with the pandemic. I think the politicization of vaccines started earlier and this sort of not wanting to follow requirements and mandates started earlier. But I, I kind of want to th- pick your brain, see what you think about, what do you think the roots of that really are? Or another way to ask that question is, how did we get here?
3: The roots go back to that notion, you know, when I started working with CDC, the immunization program in 1998, that it was pervasive, the notion that vaccines spoke for themselves and that that, that, that you didn't need to do vaccine education and vaccine communications. And we had a very difficult time persuading, you know, people who controlled budgets and, and, and funding, there was a need for that. And and what they would do, and, and I I understand it, is they would look at you know the immunization coverage data and he would say, where's the problem? Everything is at historic rates. <laughs> and and they weren't wrong. I mean, that was that was absolutely true. And the, the you know, to that point and, and probably um, through 2010, um, there was a sense that um Children needed to be vaccinated to prevent these things. And then um, I think in the last you know five to 10 years, it's gotten much more complicated. The new vaccines are more expensive. The new vaccines require more doses. The new vaccines, their dosing schedules coincide with already recommended vaccines. And so now you're increasing the potential number of shots per visit or you're increasing the number of visits. People don't see the diseases or the serious disease that can be caused by vaccine uh, preventable diseases. So, so they're not familiar with it. They don't work at hospitals, right? So, and they don't, those stories don't make the media because there's, there's privacy laws and and, and, and people don't um, often know about the serious cases of vaccine preventable disease in their community. So you're missing all of that. And And on the other side of it, there are people who are, um, like I said, have a great deal of latitude. They can put whatever claims they want out through social media, whether they are they have a basis in reality or a basis in just what they perceive. Other people can amplify that. You can use political ideology differences as a battleground, and you can you can bring in that kind of stuff, even though it may not be pertinent to what we're trying to accomplish. And I think I learned in HIV AIDS because I there, there was a lot of contention, a lot of politicalization um, in the early 1990s and probably even today, but, but it was obvious back then. It takes a lot of work and a lot of groundwork to work through those divides. You have to meet with people. You have to go out to communities. You have to engage with people. And those people that you're engaging with have to um, sincerely want to address the issue versus just make noise and get attention. And I think what social media platforms, as they have evolved and, and have gotten much more prominence, have taught people is that just getting attention is the goal. And so there's no sincere, authentic desire to actually, you know, collaborate to address a common problem. It's just who can get the most time and most visibility on social and traditional media, and that's just a bad measure of anything
1: well that is very true are, are you on are you personally on social media channels i'm not going to ask you to out yourself on all of them just uh are, do you do social media personally
3: only linkedin no oh. i mean because 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 someone who you know is done communications i mean if you if, if i was we did it when i was at cdc obviously because that's a way to reach you know you need to do that you need to be visible um but as an individual um if I want I, one, I don't want a following. I I, I don't feel like, like I need to have a following of, of people or build a following. I know that if I wanted to, I would have to be doing it like on a regular basis, like near daily. And I also know that what attracts a following is being provocative, um, having something that's worth saying every single day. And I guess I just don't feel like I meet those criteria, and and I don't when it comes to investing my time that's just not how I choose to, to spend it.
1: I really like that. <laughs> I really think that's wonderful. I think, unfortunately, there's too many people on the science side who are like, I don't need people to pay attention to me or follow me. Um, and on the other side, where people are um, promoting misinformation, they're like, everyone, look at me. <laughs> pay attention <What>? to me. <laughs>
3: Well, and I think the other thing that gets lost, and and this was one of the lessons I learned early on when I I started working with CDC, is is you have to have context. And what most people don't know is that even today, um, there are going to be 450 to 500 million tweets or whatever we want to call X these days that go out daily. So at the end of the week, you're talking billions, right? We can't see what's in most people's Facebook or Instagram. Um, most of the social media platforms are closed to us. And so most of the things that get people upset are coming from Twitter. And if you look at the number of people who actually have seen or, or shared those things, for the vast, vast majority, it's remarkably tiny. And you get a disproportionate amount of attention, one, to Twitter because the data is available, and second, when you have four million or four hundred million to five hundred million tweets a day, you can pretty much find whatever you're looking for. You can find tweets that are supportive. You can find tweets that are angry. You can find tweets that are crazy. Um, it's no mean trick to go go through that giant field of four hundred and fifty to five hundred million and find fifty that line up with what you want to believe and say. Oh my gosh! Look, this person is putting out misinformation. But one of the things I learned early on in my media studies was that a single piece of information rarely has what was a powerful effect. There's so many assumptions that are behind. First of all, you're assuming that a lot of people noticed it. In most cases, nobody noticed it. Second, you're you're assuming that the people who saw it paid attention to it. And that's a high bar. Um, Third, you're assuming that if they paid attention to it, they actually thought about it. That's even higher bar. (laughs) And in general, we are very hard to persuade. So most of the information that crosses out, is sent out through social media platforms, is landing in the, um, is being seen by people who already believe it. And it's serving more as affirmation and reaffirmation than it is in terms of changing people's minds. Now in the world of immunization, we have to constantly work on every single day, Um, the new parents coming into the world to get them to understand the importance of vaccines, and you know, we need to be talking to mothers when they're pregnant about the importance of vaccines. We need to be talking to parents more broadly about the importance of vaccines, and then when their child is born, we need to spend however much time helping them understand why vaccines are used, why they're administered when they're administered, and how um, low the risk of adverse, serious adverse events are. Um, Because the bar that most parents want is nothing to happen after a vaccination. And by nothing, not a sore arm, no crabbiness, no fussiness, no fevers. And again, I think we have done a poor job of educating parents about what to expect and how to manage their
1: expectations. I I completely agree. Well, we're almost out of time. So I'm going to ask you my last favorite question that I ask many of our guests. It's sort of uh, out of left field, but it is my favorite question. What is your favorite vaccine?
3: What is my favorite vaccine?
1: Yeah. That's a hard question. I know.
3: Well, right now I would say the COVID vaccine because because having been infected a couple of times and never having a serious bout of COVID disease, um, the illnesses have always been that I've had twice two times I've had them, um, they've been very mild. And so um I would have to say the COVID vaccine because it's one that I I can feel like I can say that it, it it seemingly worked for me, that you know I got vaccinated. I've been vaccinated. I've got five, I think four different four doses of, of COVID vaccine. Nice. Um, so my most severe COVID illness was was before I got vaccinated. So whether it's the vaccine or the or the natural immunity, but I think the fact that I have both makes me feel a lot more confident these days about being exposed to that COVID virus.
1: Nice. Yeah, that nice hybrid immunity. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, you heard that you cannot find Glenn Nowak on, on social media, so don't look for him there. You could take one of his classes at Grady University in, in Georgia, so that would work well for you um, if, if you want to relocate and do that. Otherwise, you just have to listen to him on our podcast. So thank you for joining us today. Oh,
3: absolutely, and thank you for the invitation.
1: And thank you to all of you for joining us today. It was so great to have you with us. My name is Karen Ernst and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org.
0: And I am still Dr. Nathan Boonstra, pediatrician here at Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm also chair of our Iowa State Immunization Coalition, Iowa Immunizes
1: fabulous Iowa immunizes. All right, folks, go get your shots, um, be healthy, and have a good day. To learn more, visit factstalk.org.